we are in Psalm 113. So take your Bible and turn to her. And it's good to see Elaine Palmer back. A lot of things have happened since you've been away. Have you known that? Yeah. Good to have you back. And as Gary said, I'm going to be praying at the end of the lesson because I think this lesson uh, lends itself to us praying at the end for the needs of our class. Okay? So, you got Psalm 113? Psalm 113 is our last psalm of the summer for 2016. But, if you look at the book of Psalms as a whole, Psalm 113 is the beginning of six psalms called the Hallel Psalms, Psalms of Praise, that were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they marched toward Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover season. So you'll know when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, they sing Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember they do all that? They lay down their uh, uh, coats, uh, coats or whatever it is, uh, before Jesus. So that's Psalm 118. Well, Psalm 113 through 118 consists of those three pilgrims, or those six pilgrim songs. Now I want you to notice that Psalm 113 opens and closes on the same note. Notice how it opens. Praise the Lord. Notice how it closes. Praise the Lord. So what we have is at the beginning and the end, the psalmist shouts out praise to the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So he is praising the covenant God of Israel, the one who enters into an agreement with these people, promises to bless them based on their obedience and so forth. And these two shouts at the beginning and at the end form brackets around the psalm. So this is why this is a praise psalm. In between those brackets, we have a content that's divided into two sections. So here's how we're going to divide the psalm. Section number one, the call to praise, which goes from verses one through three. And then section two, the cause for praise, which goes from verses 4 through verses 9. Okay? The call and the cause. Okay? So let's look at the call to praise. So we pick up at that second line in verse 1. Praise, O servants of the Lord. This is the who question. Answers the who question. Who is the praise? It's those who serve God Yahweh as their master. Okay? Those who are subject to God. Those who obey God. That's what servants are. Okay? That's the who of the praise. Now look at the what of the praise in verse 1. Praise what? Look, the name of the Lord. What's God's name? What's the name that God reveals to Moses? Yahweh or Jehovah. Tell them Jehovah sent you. I am that I am. So this is God's revelatory name. They knew there was a God, but they never knew His name. God revealed His name to them. It's His redemptive name. This is the name that God uses when He's going to redeem people, when He's going to rescue people. This is His covenant name. So this is the name that He uses when He comes to Israel's aid. So when Israel ever told the story of how they were rescued, they always would use the name Yahweh. So, what we have here is a name that reveals God's character. If I say God, that doesn't reveal anything. If I say Yahweh, that reveals his character. He's a God who uh, 
rescues us and comes to our aid. So that's the what. Okay? Then he adds this in verse 2. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're called to praise God. And then look what it says. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So our praise brings happiness to God. You want to make somebody happy? Just praise them. Brag on them a little bit. You want to minister to God? Brag on God a little bit. Our praise blesses God. And that's what he is saying here. This is the way that we can minister to God. We always think of God ministering to us, or we minister to each other. But this is the way we can minister to God. We can bless God. We can make him happy by bragging on him. So the who, the what. Now look at the when. The when of praise. Okay? Look at verse 3. Or end of verse 2. From this time, so you're to bless God and you're to praise God, from this time forth and evermore. So how long are we to praise God? From now and forever. We're to continually praise God. There should never be a time when we don't praise God. Uh, most of us, I would say, praise God on Sunday. You know, that's, we do that. But usually we, if our day is busy, oftentimes, and we don't make time to praise God. We just go on with our own business. So the win of praise is continually praise God. Okay, That's the first from. Blessed be the name of God from the time forth, this time forth, and evermore. And then look at verse 3. We have the second from. From the rising of the sun to its going down. Now this is figurative language. So what does it mean? The rising of the front sun to its going down. So you would say it could relate to time. The wind. When are you to do it? From the rising of the sun to its going down. From sunrise to sunset. Or from the time you get up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night. You should be praising God. It could mean that. You know, it may refer to the where. You ever think of that? Where does the sun rise up? In the what? Where does the sun set? In the what? So that's location, isn't it? Not only the when, but also the where. These are two opposite words. East and west. And everything in between encompasses, encompasses everything in between. All the locations in between. So we should be praising God everywhere. All the time. All who are his servants. Does that make sense? So I think that's really significant. Now verses 1 through 3 in a sense are instructions. It tells us what to do. It's a call to praise, but it tells us what to do. Uh, we're to bless God. It tells us when to do it, where to do it, and so forth. The call to praise. Now we come to the second section, and that's the cause of praise. And this is where it gets sort of interesting. The cause of praise. Now we've talked about the who. We've talked about the what, we've talked about the when, we've talked about the where, now we're going to talk about the why. Why should you praise God? Okay. The cause for prayer, or for praise. First of all, I want you to notice, we praise God because of his greatness. Look at verse 4. The Lord is high above all the nations. He reigns over all the nations. Uh, whether they realize it or not. God reigns whether they realize it or not. 
before you became a believer, you didn't know God was reigning over anything. You just thought that you were sort of in control of your life. If you were like I was, God was sort of an afterthought. The only time I ever prayed to God when I was a kid, when I was at that, and there was a runner on third and I needed to get that runner. <laughs> I prayed every time for that. God came through many times for that. <laughs> Proving that God's a baseball fan, I guess. I don't know. But here it says, God's greatness, the Lord, is high above. And that's the key words, those phrases, that phrase, high above all nations. He reigns over the nations. The nations are located on earth. God reigns over the earth. Whether people realize it or not. Second cause, or the reason why we should praise God, is God's glory. Look at verse 4. His glory, where is His glory? Above the heavens. His glory, His presence is above the stars, above the sun, above the moon, above the highest of heavens, above the angels. He transcends creation. Um, just think about that. He's above earth, above the nations. But he's also above the heavens. That means if God looks up, since he's above the heavens, he looks up and he's above the stars. He looks up, he's above the sun, he's above the angels. God looks up, he doesn't see anybody greater than himself. There's no one superior to God. He's above it all. See, that's what he's trying to say. He is exalted, he's above everything. He's above heaven and he's above earth. Therefore, guess what we should do? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's why we should praise Him. We should praise Him because He's great. We should praise Him because of His glory. Now we should also praise Him because of His humility. Look what it says in verse 5. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high? And the answer is what? No one. Watch this follow-up that describes God. Who humbles himself to behold or inspect or look upon the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. Now look at that. He has to humble himself to look at the things that are where? In the heavens or on the earth. From his vantage point, everything is below him. Even the heavens are below him. If he wants to look at heaven, guess what he has to do? He has to look down. Now this is figurative language because we know God's omnipresent, right? He's using uh, anthropomorphic language, language that describes humans and applies it to God to drive home a point. He wants you to realize how great God is and how for him to be involved in human affairs, he has to humble himself. He has to condescend, see, in order to even look at the heavens. He has to bow down. He has to condescend. So it's a rhetorical question. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high? And the answer is no one. Guess what? Let's praise him. That's a cause for praise. Uh, he has to look down even at the heavens and on earth to inspect those things. So praise him. He has to make an effort. He's above everything. To help us, guess what he has to do? He has to reach down. Okay? So that leads to the last reason we're to praise him, and that's because of his actions. Now look at verse 
7. We have two examples of him having to humble himself to, in a sense, reach down to earth. The first way he condescends, his first action, look what he does. This God who's on high. He raises the poor out of the dust. Number one, he raises the poor out of the dust. Have we dealt with this before, this concept of poor? I mention it every week, don't I? Not because I like to talk about helping the poor, but because what? It's in Psalms everywhere. So first of all, God reaches down to the most poverty-stricken people who are struggling to survive, and he lifts them up. Now, in the United States Senate, we have a Ways and Means Committee. God reaches down and he lifts the poor up through different ways and different means. He can do it sovereignly. Or he can use human beings as his instruments, his channels. In the Old Testament, how did he make sure that the poor were raised up? He made a covenant with Israel. And he said this, if someone, and everybody in Israel owned land, remember they he doled it out, didn't he? Everybody was a landowner. But what happens if you are growing crops and you have a drought in your part of the nation? And your crops don't grow and you can't buy food? Well, you may enter into a deal with another person who gives you money and they take over your land. So you can forfeit your land. And, uh, you know, you may just be living, you know, uh, week by week, you know, hand to mouth. You may be poor. You've given up your land, you know, to get enough money to get through and just survive. But at the end of the seven years, what did God say? You had to give that back, and so the poor person was lifted up. So there was no poor person left behind. No one left behind in Israel. In theory. That's how it was supposed to be. God gave guidelines. God gave rules. He said, you do this and I'll bless you. This is, but guess what? They didn't want to do it. But that was how it was intended, see? So that no one was in you know, continuous economic despair. In the New Testament, how does God take care of the poor? What's the means that he decides to use? It was never God's intention to just use a government. He uses the church. And so the church is supposed to take care of the poor. And we'll be talking more about that in a moment. So first of all, notice the first action God does is he raises up the poor out of the dust. And look at the next phrase. And lifts the needy out of the ash heap. Literally out of the dunghill. The place where refuse is burned continuously. You ever been to India? You know what something like that looks like, and you know there are people who are digging through that, don't you? You can't get any more poverty-stricken than that. And so here it says that God reaches down, and he lifts those that are in the dunghill of life and raises them up. He lifts them out of that. Now remember, what's the call? The call is to what? What's the cause? God lifts people out of that, those dolphins. And guess what we should do? Praise the Lord. That's what we should be doing, praising the Lord. Now we have a purpose statement. Why does he lift them up? 
Why does he lift up the needy? Why does he lift up the poor? Why does he get them out of that situation? Watch this. Look at the next word in verse 8. You see it? That. So that. Here's the purpose statement. In order that. You see that? Here's the reason. In order that he may sit him with what? Princes. With the princes of his people. He does this in order that he may raise up the poor and the needy <coughs> to a place that's normally reserved for nobility. So there's a sense in which um, the poor person becomes equal with the prince, with the royal person. There's no status in God's sight. We're all equal in God's sight. That's his goal, is to move people up to the status. My grandfather came to the United States back in the very early 1900s from Wales. He had to go from Wales to England, to Southampton, get on a ship called the City of Paris. And he and his mother and two sisters came to the United States in steerage. So when I got on, you know, Ancestry.com and I looked, it said steerage. I said, well, what's steerage? And so I got on the internet and I looked up steerage on Wikipedia, the source of all knowledge. <laughs> and it said steerage. It was very interesting. It said, in the early 1900s, and this is exactly what my grandfather did, it said steerage was the lowest level in the ship where they carried cargo. But people who were so poor, who couldn't, you know, get a place in another deck, actually came across in that cargo hold called steerage. Well, imagine my grandfather in steerage, and they moved him up to the presidential suite. Can you imagine what a blessing that would have been? Hey, he would be in the place of royalty. He was poor, but guess what? He would be lifted up, raised up. You've gotten that just to, some of you have been on a plane and they give you first class and you weren't expecting it. You're happy, aren't you? <laughs> you know, that just happens sometimes, you know. And here God actually does this, and he puts us equal with royalty, equal status. Now, again, in the church, this is what Jesus teaches. This is what the Apostle Paul teaches. Were there four people in the church? Yes. About 90% of the people in the Roman Empire were dirt poor. And 90% of the Christians were dirt poor. But there were also some elites. People had money they were in the church. And every Sunday, guess what they would do? They'd get together and they'd have something. We're having the church today, an abbreviated version, called the Lord's Supper. First century, it was a real supper. It was a real meal. It was a real spread. And guess what? The poor sat down with the elites and ate the same meal. When it didn't happen, the elites were condemned. Remember what Paul said to the elites in 1 Corinthians? He said, you come in, and you eat all the food, and you drink all the drink, and you get drunk. And then the poor people come in who've just been working in the fields, and guess what? There's nothing left for them. Yes, he lays them out, because that's not the way it is. The poor are to be raised up and have that equal status, the status of a king. So, in Christ, there are men and women. There are distinctions, but guess what? There's no difference. 
In Christ, there's no male or female. In society, there are slaves and free people, but guess what? In Christ, no slave or free. Notice the slave and free are equal in Christ when they come together in the church. See? In Christ, there's no poor, there's no rich. In Christ, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile. No advantage to being a Jew in the church. Now, in the Old Testament, guess what? Great advantage of being a Jew. Right? But not in the church. No advantage. See? Equal. And so we are like kings. And in the future kingdom, when the kingdom comes to earth, guess what? We're all going to live like royalty. In fact, right now he calls us a kingdom of priests. In 1 Peter, we're a kingdom of priests. And so we see that there's this equality. And you know when you were a kid, you used to sing the song, red or yellow, black and white. Yeah, there's no difference in these things. Are there distinctions? Yes, there are red people. Yes, there are black people. There are white people. There are yellow people. Guess what? Distinctions and society uses those distinctions to keep people right where they want them. But in Christ, there's no, there's no difference. So actions, number one, and therefore we should say, praise the Lord in Christ. You know, we share, we're equal. Action number two that should bring praise. Look at verse nine. He grants the barren woman a home, meaning he gives her a family. He changes her status from having no children to childbearing status. And then look what else it says right at the end of verse 9. It says, He grants the barren woman a home just like a joyful mother of children. Notice how he changed the status. Just like he changed the status of poor people, he changed the status of a barren woman to a child-bearing woman. But she has children. In the Old Testament, a wife that didn't have children was considered cursed. And she lived with shame and she lived with humiliation. Now that was a patriarchal society. Notice they never blamed the man for that. You ever notice that? The man's never blamed because the family didn't have kids. It was the women, woman who was always blamed. That's what you have in a patriarchal society. But think about this. There is a woman in the Old Testament who indeed is barren and her name is Hannah. Remember that? And what does Hannah do? She cries out to God. In fact, the prophet Eli says, he saw her mouth open and it moving, but no words were coming out. The prayer was so deep she couldn't even articulate the words, but her heart was saying, oh Lord, give me children. And so what does God do? He gives her a child. And she says, Lord, because you gave me this child, I know it's a gift. This is what he's done right here. He made this barren woman childbearing. So she can have a family. And she praises God and she says, I'm going to give my son to serve in your temple. Remember that? Now I want you to go over to 1 Samuel. I want to show you something that I think is pretty interesting. Because this is the story. And we won't look at the, the whole story, but... What we'll do is we'll, I'll just point out where this is located. So in chapter 1, you have the story of her crying out in her heart. And you can see in verse 13, this is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 13. 
1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 13. Now Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. And therefore Eli, who was the prophet, thought she was drunk. But it wasn't that. And she says, no, I'm praying. I'm grief-stricken. I'm praying that I'll have a child. And, of course, then God gives her the child. You see in verse 20, it says, It came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a child and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. And then we have her prayer. You see that down in verse 1 of chapter 2. Hannah prays, and my heart rejoices in the Lord, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Now I want to show you something interesting. Look at verse 7. Look what she says in her prayer. He makes the poor, he makes the rich, he brings the low, and he does what? He lifts them up. Look at it. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts up the beggar from the ash heap, the dunghill, and sets them among the princes. What does that You notice something there? <laughs> what do you notice? Psalm 113 is quoting this particular verse. The verse that comes from Hannah's prayer. Here is a real life experience of God being gracious toward a needy person. Notice, in this case, he doesn't use Israel as the channel of blessing. He doesn't use the church as the channel of blessing. This is a time where the means God uses is a sovereign act on his behalf. The same as he takes Mary, who she says, why have you even considered me a humble, lowly, you know, maiden? And God supernaturally gives her a child in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So sometimes God just reaches down sovereignly and he meets the need. See, that is the basis of saying, praise the Lord, when that happens. So in Psalm 113, what we see is we see a call to praise. And then second of all, we see the cause for praise. We praise God because of his greatness. We praise God because of his glory. We praise God because of his humility. We praise God because of his actions on our behalf. And we have two examples there. And therefore, the psalm ends with a shout, praise the Lord. You see that? So, when you read a psalm like that, and I know how some of you think, you know, it's just the way it is. Some of you think that God really is not concerned about you. So where is God when all these things are going wrong in my life? You don't even think that God's aware of you. <laughs> that God knows that you have needs. But guess what? What does that psalm say? He does. Therefore, we shouldn't fret. But what should we do? We should praise the Lord. Last night, I got on the internet, and I looked up the words of his eyes on the sparrow, and I, I uh, found something I thought was very interesting. <clears throat> First four lines of his eyes on the sparrow is actually a question. I've always just sung it as, as a song, but the, the stanzas go like this. Why should I be discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely? Now listen to this next part. Why should my heart be lonely for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion at 
that point in the original song is a question mark. So think of this. Why should you ever be depressed and discouraged? <laughs> you know, why do you get down in the dumps and allow the shadows to fall? Why are you lonely? You know, why are you homesick? <laughs> even for heaven? Or for home where you grew up? Why are you homesick? When Jesus is your portion, he's right here. He's here to help you. He'll take all that away. Don't be hopeful for having your home or going back to your childhood. Right now, Jesus is your portion. You can be happy. That's how the song is to be sung. See? Why should you feel discouraged? Why should the shadows fall? Why should you be lonely for heaven and for home when Jesus is your portion? Then it goes into the words, a constant friend is hit right now. You see? His eye is on the sparrow. And what? And I know he cares for me. That's the theme of Psalm 113. When we take these words to heart, we realize that God watches over us. He hasn't forgotten us. And when we think of it, the people in our class right now who are needy, He's here to help. And one of the means He uses to raise people up and meet needs is the prayers of His people. So I want us to close today with praying for the needs of our class, and we have a lot of needs. So pray with me, will you? Lord, when we think of this psalm that